Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, what difference does the shape, colour or size of the glass make to the experience of fine champagne? And how does what we see, smell or taste impact what we think of it? We shall explore these sensory questions with Laurent Frenet, chef de cave at Champagne Mum. Plus, Freddie's back. Later on, the Wine Society buyer Freddie Bulmer joins us from Liverpool to reflect on life as a buyer. And of course, as ever, your medal-winning recommendations from the IWSC. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. If you've ever tasted the same wine in a different place with an alternative food pairing or just from a different glass, then you'll probably know that wine can be greatly impacted by its surroundings. We've uh, maybe all tried that sensational Provence rosé we had by the pool in Pampelon, only to discover it's not quite the same on a wet night in Wilsdon. Our sensory experience is absolutely crucial. To explore what really influences our enjoyment of champagne, Maison Mum teamed up with a leading neuroscientist, Gabriel Lepousse, to experiment. The results of his work are fascinating. They were billed as a groundbreaking tasting experience celebrating the Pinot Noir signature of its cuvées, and I was lucky enough to be treated to that sensory experience. First, to explore the impact of aromas, we were given a series of scents on cards, much like you might sample a fragrance at a department store. And in turn, we tried subtle aromas on those cards, like uh, violets, rose petals, citrus blossom, and also more potent ones like a beeswax polish uh, or diacetyl, a chemical compound produced by lactic acid that's reminiscent of buttery popcorn. Smelling these aromas genuinely changed the aromas and to an extent even the taste profile of the same champagne. Uh, Next we explored the same rosé champagne in a typical flute and then a thicker, heavier, dark purple glass, which meant you couldn't see what was inside. The change in aromas and taste was dramatic, with the darker glass delivering an experience much more akin to red wine. Mum is celebrated for its Pinot Noir, so finally we sampled the same Grand Cru Champagne, RSRV 2013 Blanc de Noir, in three different glasses. A typical flute, uh, this dark heavy purple glass that we used before, and also a frosted glass with a pointed aluminium stem that was quite challenging and quite heavy to hold. The same champagne had significantly different aromas across all three different glasses, and the perception of its acidity and even its dosage level felt different to my palate at least, and also to the very experienced master of wine who was sitting next to me at the time. 
Afterwards, I spoke to the cellar master, or chef de cave, at Maison Mum, Laurent Frenet, who was our co-host for the tasting, to ask him what he was setting out to show with this Taste Encounters project. So, to be chef de cave, is, uh, the, main, uh, the goal of the chef de cave is to, to guarantee the, the, the consistency of the, of the size. So, it's the main thing, because, you know, each year we, we start with uh, white pages, and we know the end of the story, you know, the, they live uh, together with a lot of children, but uh, the beginning of the story we didn't know, never know. And uh, our job is to write a very nice story until the end. So each of us is, di- uh, is different, and we need to, to be very sure uh, uh, to drive the, the, uh, the style in a good way. So it's why it's very, very um, team uh, working. Uh, to, to, to find uh, the goal at the end. It was fascinating today. Initially, we were um, poured the same champagne um, in, um, in, in one single glass, and we were given uh, cards, like little um, pieces of paper that you, you're given in a department store for a perfume, and those cards had different aromas on them. Um, just explain what you were trying to prove with the... Uh, aromas on the card, um, and then um, the perception that we then had of the champagne. Uh, this experience was very uh, described and uh, uh, and creates only to reveal the the aromatic uh, complexity of Pinot Noir and really uh, rediscover the type of moon. Uh, I would say we say uh, we can uh, repeat it with anything. We need to to be very much more precise. It takes. Uh, hours and hours to, uh, to define precisely the glasses, the two glasses so, and uh, the, the aromats we, we, we try to, to, to give to you. So it's only oriented to discover the style of moon and the savoir-faire of, um, of Maison Moon and especially to, to reveal uh, the high potential and complexity of Pinot Noir. And so if we, um, if we are to to smell, let's say, for example, there was um, a delicate aroma of violets that not everybody could perceive yeah. even. Uh, some people could not get that, others could. Mm. And then um, that had um, an effect on the champagne that we had already, um, we'd already written a tasting note for. Uh, I then wrote a slightly different tasting note, mm. having, um, had, having had that aroma of violets. Um, mm. And uh, you're working with a, a leading uh, neuroscientist, Gabriel. Um, what has he uh, and what has that work taught you about the way uh, people perceive um, aromas and, and its impact on champagne? So um, the first, uh, the f- first part of the, of the testing with uh, the three described uh, aromats is only to to make people uh, very uh, much more free to speaking about aromats and wine because. I boil it at this concentration, I didn't smell it at all. So, uh, beta damascenol, I say the second one, it was very, very, very hard for me and uh, very strong. And that's the second, first one I didn't. So, for, to decomplex people and to say that by genetic can completely change uh, the flavor the, the you, you, you can um, catch. So, this is very, very important to decomplex the situations and say that all people. Uh, got the truth in testing. Mm-hmm. Nobody has the same work to explain it, but we have we have a part of the truth. And it's fascinating to hear you say that um, as a cellar master of a, 
of a major champagne house uh, with uh, 30 years of experience. Yeah, we we um, we're all um, we're all different. Um, you've got vast experience of of uh, of, of dealing with uh, with champagne, and yet you perceive things in a different way um, to, to others, presumably within your team. Yeah, exactly. Exactly what we speak about about the team of uh, wine experts. So it's very important to have the different intensity of sensations and especially because I, for example, I'm very precise on the diacetyl and some molecules. I'm very, very precise about it. And in the team, you have people some much more precise on the cork flavors. Small cork flavors can detect it and uh, much more than me. And this is very important to have this kind of complex of experts to be, to be guarant about the style. And this is a very, everybody is complimentary. And uh, this, this expert team is a force. Of, of us, and we need to drive it, and that's why I tell you that uh, we need to, to reset the flowers every year to be sure to don't pollute by the, uh, the environment, by the situations, by the experience. So we need to, everybody needs to, to reset the nose every year. So it's very funny to, 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 to do that, and it's very, very, very useful for, uh, for, um, for the team. And it really rams home the importance of having a team uh, creating a, a non-vintage uh, style uh, mm. to achieve, I guess, the consistency that you have to achieve. Yeah, we have a part of the style. Each, each people got a part of the style. Of course, we, we I organize this this uh, this style at the end. But uh, each people got its specialized flavors and uh, to guarantee the style or not. So it's very uh, it's the richness of the uh, expert team. So it's why it's very important for me to work as a team. Make the wine is not one person; it's a team. And is, in speaking about the team expert team, but you need to add to that uh, the vineyard, the, the farmers, uh, the, the, all the, the partners, uh, all the, the, the people working in the winery, everything. It is, each time of process, each step of process is very important for us. And uh, the next uh, experiment, if you like, that we were uh, shown uh, was uh, the different glassware and the impact, uh, which Blew my mind, actually, to be honest. Uh, so we had um, the same um, cuvee um, uh, poured into uh, uh, different styles of glass. Mm -hmm. And uh, first of all, we were looking at the impact on on rosé. What what did you um, think that we um, took away from that? For the rosé, mm -hmm. yeah, for the rosé is uh, is much more particular because we didn't. Uh, do the same way that we are working uh, at home because at home we are working for with your dark glasses to don't be influenced by the color. For, for us, the color is the, the worst things to be influenced. So if it's a very dark pink, you can think a much more dark fruit. If it's a small pink, very light pink, you can smell, uh, think of things about uh, uh, gooseberries or something like that. So it's very influencing. So it's why we use dark, dark glasses. In this experience, uh, it's useful for Rosé to to precise the fruit because uh, the color of this wine of the glass, we takes hours to, to find the color with uh, with uh, with Octave. It was very disgusting because uh, we didn't know which color we is working, and we find this one at, at the end after seven hours working. And uh, it was very funny because we used different color to and different aspect of glasses to, to find uh, which one can reveal the the the, the fruitiness we are looking for, and we find this color the the kind of uh, print print color mm -hmm. and uh, it was very funny 
And uh, for the rosé, this kind of um, glasses reveal the complexity of uh, the fruitiness. So you know, I know you can find some strawberry, raspberry, some red fruit, but at the end, the complexity is much more, much more, uh, much more uh, important. You have much more. Uh, you can drive much more on the dark fruit, on the uh, blackberries, but especially for me, it was uh, amaranth cherries. So mm -hmm. it's a kind of uh, licorice, uh, cherries licorice of, uh, of Italia. So it's very, very funny. And you revealed that when you're working with the tasting committee, you wear dark glasses to avoid the color influencing you. You don't, want, you don't want to influence by the color. What you're looking for is the tasting, the, the flowers, the aromas, the, the touch in your, in your mouth. We don't looking for the, for the color. Color, we can, we can use engine for that. To, def to define a special color, this uh, uh, precise uh, optic density, uh, you need only apparatus for that. You don't need uh, only eyes. But this, uh, this color can perturb the testing. So it's why we try to, to be much more precise with dark glasses. Um, and then the most fascinating, I think, uh, uh, of the experiments uh, was the uh, three different glasses, uh, the conventional. Um, sort of reasonably broad champagne glass. Um, glassware looks sort of completely standard, the best way of, 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 of conventionally of drinking uh, champagne. And then there was um, a, a black glass that was really quite, um, quite, quite heavy. Um, and then there was a, um, a frosted glass with a, a rather uncomfortable um, aluminium um, pointed stem. Um, tell us about the, the, the difference. We, we were then tasting um, uh, RSRV, uh, the Blanc de Noir, yeah. 2013, I think, is the, uh, the vintage. Tell us um, what uh, the difference was with those three different glasses. Uh, with these three different glasses, it can make you like a baby, uh, adult, and old people. So exactly the same, same way of feeling, because um, Normal, normal glasses is the, the glass we use to, to have everybody every year, every day, and uh, the useful glasses, and uh, is a normal sensation we're looking for. And if you, if you test the wine with uh, the frosty glasses, uh, and with, uh, in, uh, with uh, the tree, very, very sharp and uh, in aluminium, very light, uh, it reminds you of the youngness of the wine. The high potential can stay uh, on seven years. And uh, for me, it's very baby, it's almost aggressive because it's very, very baby. It's, you can you can imagine that the, the, the potential aging of this wine is very high because you don't have, a, you have only fruity and freshness. You don't have a maturity, you don't have a quick citrus, you don't have a, a third aromat in the mouth. And with the, the, the opposite, the, with the purple glasses, and the, which one is the inox stainless uh, fit with a very, very heavy wine, uh, it drives you on uh, another different in another way, much more mature, much more generosity on the generosity. But is the, is the wine is the, the 2013 is the, the last release, so he, the, the wine is not a very very uh, very whole maturity. It's very perfect maturity, and you have a very very high potentiality because because in this kind of wine you don't feel the high all the potential you can have. So it means that the, this wine got very high potential aging. So you have to buy it very quickly and put it in the corner in the cellar because it's going to be very, very high value in Cape of Field. It's uh, with a very generosity, with a toasty note and uh, uh, this kind of generosity around the, the Venus and the bakery's travel.
it's uh, wonderful tasting that uh, 2013 vintage in those different ways, but it also brought home um, the, uh, as you say, the, the great aging potential. Um, I, I think for me, the 13 vintage is, is probably my favorite yeah. um, in, in, a, in a while, actually. Um, tell us about that vintage, because it was quite unusual by modern standards, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's unusual vintage, because uh, we, the, the only year we finished picking grapes in October, uh, since the new millennium. So it looks like a vintage we had in the 20th century, when we normally uh, starting to pick grapes <laughs> on mid, if it's early, it's mid-September, and uh, we usually finish in, in October. Uh, since the new millennium, we start to have a half time on, uh, on August, <laughs> and, uh, and finish at mid-September, it's finished. So that's why with the global warming, this, uh, this 2013 year is completely uh, apart, very, very particular, because we have a high maturity, a high potentiality, so we have a, a nice, uh, nice acidity inside, looking to the wine, very uh, high potential, and of course we have a, it was a very fruity year, because we keep the time to, to mature correctly the wine. We don't have, uh, like in August, we have in August means that uh, the maturity was very, very quick. When you have a very quick maturity, you miss something. You can mature everything. So you miss some, uh, some elements, some, uh, some bar exemple, for example, the, the tannin, uh, the tannin and something like that. So when you have, take time, you can, uh, if you don't have disease, of course, not Migo, not prototype, not uh, Oibun, you can have a very, uh, very nice complexity, nice maturity, and nice fruitiness, and very high potentiality. Well, it's definitely um, one to put away, I think, uh, 2013, because it's got, uh, yeah, and we were that, that experiment today really underlined the um, importance of acidity and that definition um, in the acidity in the, in, in the, the wine. Didn't yeah, it? exactly. With uh, the global warming, the the we progress uh, earlier and earlier. Last uh, like last year, like uh, every year, we, it means we start to harvest every every in, in August, uh, but uh, only because. Um, if you mature too much with your wine, you lost your, totally your acidity. And uh, you uh, can reverse this kind of process. So, and you have, of course, if you have too much maturity, you have too much exotic note, too much maturity to travel, who uh, impacts uh, differently your potential aging and the style of your wine. So you need to be careful. And the, uh, the date of harvest is very, very important for us. That's why since the last two years, uh, Champagne and Pregret start harvest uh, three, four days before everybody. Because we have a special testing, we test berries and we make uh, analysis of elements to, to be sure and guarantee the, the fruitiness and the, the, the right time picking grapes. Uh, it's the first time I've um, uh, had uh, the chance to, to meet you in the flesh today because you started just before the pandemic. So I've yeah. seen you on Zoom tastings, <laughs> and, um, but, uh, but never uh, met, met you in, uh, in person. So it's, it's great to be able to do that. Um, tell me, um, as the chef de carve, um, it must be like someone giving you a, a very valuable um, vase and holding it in your hands. You know, it, you're given this responsibility for a, mm. a very a much loved, a very valuable brand. Um, how do you go about your job as the chef de carve? What's your um, what's the way you you do that job? Um, I, I tell you that uh, the, the the lockdown helped me for that because I. Can full immerse myself in, uh, in uh, history, in the uh, in, uh, archives, in the uh, in the wine, and help with my 
expertise as I fully met myself into the wine and give me the key. How they worked before and how I want the work for the future together. So we make a, a kind of play a game together to, to work in the same way and to, to don't change the rule and to, to focus on the Pinot, Pinot Noir uh, aromatic flavors to, to pre define and to precise the style of Moon. And Pinot Noir is absolutely fundamental to the identity of, of Moon, isn't it? Yeah, it's the DNA of Moon. DNA of Moon is my DNA as well, so it's Pinot Noir. And of course, Pinot Noir of Montagrin, of course, but uh, Pinot Noir in general. We have, uh, you know, we can speak about the different soil of Pinot Noir because we have a uh, ten, uh, terroir of Pinot Noir are so rich. It depends uh, which kind of area you have. If you have in the soft part, in which kind of village in the soft, soft part of uh, Montagne d'Orens, you can find some Pinot Noir in, uh, in Ops area, uh, Pinot Noir in close the valley, close high, and something like that. It's completely different. And the richness of the Pinot Noir is that. So it's why we try to, to define the style much more precisely with all the generosity of Pinot Noir. It depends the soil and, uh, and the, the villages. And um, the most recent release in vintage terms from you, uh, which we're tasting today, um, it's actually the first 2015 vintage mm. I've tasted. Um, and uh, I had a little preview a couple of uh, weeks ago. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really great. Tell us about the 15 vintage and this uh, Brutes Millesime 15 release. Yeah. 15, uh, 2015 was a very uh, standard uh, uh, vintage, except we need to be, we to keep the kind of quality and to the maturity and the freshness. We 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 had, we had to be very selected at the at the vineyards and especially uh, in the fermentation. So we need to separate everything because we in 2015 we have two ways of of, of winemaking. We have uh, a lot of um, uh, green attack, a lot of vegetal into the 2015, but you have also a lot of maturity, generosity, and fruitiness. So we need to very separate the two parts of, uh, of, uh, of the way of, um, of um, the wine uh, fermentation to, to, to guarantee uh, the, the, the vintage, because vintage is, can use a reserve wine, can, can uh, affinate with something else. The 2015 needs to be very pure and characteristic of your style and, and the characteristic of the the year. So it's why we need to select it since the beginning and not at the end. When everything is finished, it's not like you have a, maybe a 20 samples in front of you and say, okay, now I have to make my vintage. Now, vintage, you have to produce your vintage since harvest until the end. Well, it's drinking uh, fantastically. You're, you're obviously delighted with the results, brother. Yeah, brother yeah it's, 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 it's gorgeous. It's generous, gorgeous. It's, it's got a lot of charm, this one. It's a uh, fruity, Charm and very easy to be drink. It's very, it's very, it's a vintage, special, special for people started coming, uh, started um, very novice uh, tester. It's very, very easy to catch the vintage. You catch the style of moon uh, with uh, only uh, uh, more than a uh, uh, five fifth of uh, four fifth of uh, of pinot noir is uh, is amazing. It tastes great. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Laurent, uh, uh, and uh, congratulations on the, on the new uh, vintage release as well. Yeah, thank you very much to you. Thanks. Laurent Frenet, the chef de cave at Maison Mum, uh, talking about their fascinating Taste Encounters project. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
Okay, let's celebrate some medal-winning wines and spirits from the IWSC now, and where better to start than Maison Mum, with a gold medal winner that scored 95 points. Maison Mum RSRV 4.5 Grand Cru Brut Non-Vintage. The 4.5, I think, is a reference to the uh, unique blend of five of Maison Mum's Grand Cru Tauwars, Pinot Noir from Verzenay, I and Bouzy for power and structure, along with uh, Chardonnay from Cremant and Avise, giving elegance and finesse. The judging panel here, which included three masters of wine, John Hoskins, Simon Field and Catherine Petrie, said of this one, a lively mousse with fresh and fragrant aromas, hints of sherbet, marshmallow, lemon posset, mango, creamed peaches and ripe orange lead on to a composed and approachable palate that has good complexity as well as being Moorish and perfectly judged. I was fortunate enough to be served another champagne from that RSRV range, the uh, 2013 Grand Cru Blanc de Noir, for that tasting counter you heard about, and I can testify to the quality and complexity of that particular brand. Uh, next, uh, a silver medal winner that's also a bit of a bargain, frankly, uh, Paraiso Sur Syrah from Chile's Casablanca Valley, which won 93 points. An organic wine from the 2016 vintage. Uh, the judges said smoked meats baked in earthiness indicate tertiary development. Still powerful but fine tannins balanced by blackberry acidity. Very long finish, full of flavours, combining warmth and savouriness and sweetness too. Uh, this one is from Aldi and I checked its website uh, just to make sure it's uh, still in stock. It seems to be. Presumably it's in branches too. And it's just £9.99, uh, which is uh, excellent value. And let's celebrate uh, a spirits winner from the new 2022 Hall of Fame, the Character of Isla Whiskey Company, 10-year-old Aerolite Lindsay, single malt scotch whiskey bit of a mouthful that one aerolite lindsay is apparently an anagram of the words 10 year old isla in case you were wondering according to master of malt this decade old single malt was aged in bourbon and sherry barrels awarded 97 points it was described this way by the judges softly tropical and sweet with honey and iodine symphonically balanced and smoke scented a wonderful, warm back palette, fragrant and fantastic, a cloud of comfort. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Well, from fine champagne, where do we go? The answer is, of course, Freddie Bulmer, uh, the buyer for Australia, New Zealand, Austria and Eastern Europe at the Wine Society. And he joins us now from Liverpool. Freddie, hello. Welcome back. <laughs> hello. How are you? I'm all right. Why are you in Liverpool? <laughs> I'm in Liverpool because we uh, did a, a Wine Society members event last night, uh, which was the first sort of in real life event that uh, that I've attended. Well, first real life Wine Society event that I've attended in over two years. So it was quite nice to be back, really. Yeah. So what do you do here? This is mingling with the members, is it? <laughs> mingling with the members that should be the name of my autobiography i think uh yes basically so there was a, a a tasting which tied in with our latest edition of the 1874 magazine so there was a wide selection of wines uh from there which was sort of out for everybody to taste and uh yeah just sort of you know answering questions saying hello and helping to pour and things like that so um 
no, it was it was good fun. It was yeah, it was great to be back and great to be able to to chat with people. For a buyer, this must be um, a different dimension for you because the buyers in retail uh, sort of outlets don't mm. often get um, to, unless they work in a shop, uh, don't often get to meet the customer. And of course, the members are the customers. So uh, it must in some ways be quite humbling. Yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> it's great. It's lovely. You know, you get lots of nice feedback from people. Uh, I think the thing with Wine Society members as well is that people understandably feel like they're really uh, sort of a part of, of something. Uh, they, they sort of really really care about it so you get feedback good and bad you know if, if members uh, don't necessarily agree with something that we've done they'll corner you at a tasting and tell you it like it is um, but equally there's some really lovely uh, feedback from people you know people who've really enjoyed uh, the new wines and things like that so so yeah it's uh it's a, it's a really unique experience. It's always nice to catch up with people. Yeah, and I guess you get held to account for your wines, which can, I, I suppose, is mostly a good thing, hopefully. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, held to account is a, is, a, is a strong term, perhaps. But yes, pretty much. <laughs> I suppose it's actually quite accurate. Um, you know, as I say, you know, people tell you how it is. And uh, I had a lady come up to me and say, you're not doing enough with Margaret River. And I said, oh, gosh, OK, yes, I know. There's, there's stuff on the way. Don't worry, you know. And, uh, but likewise, there was uh, some lovely comments about the um, the new wines from Whistler, who we've talked about on here before, which was really nice. So, yes, either way, good and bad. Uh, it's it's all made, made known, you know. <laughs> well, I am a member myself. And uh, your latest edition of um, 1874, the members magazine, uh, popped through my uh, letterbox last week. And um, Australia is um, a big deal for you at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's been the lead feature in this uh, edition of the magazine, which is nice. It's been nice to be able to kind of put into practice this sort of new approach to how we're structuring our Australian range. Um, so, you know, I think I, I might have mentioned to you before, but we're sort of trying to f fit it into this kind of four pillars where we've got the classic... Australian stuff, your Cabernets, your your Hunter Semillons and so on. Um, a separate to that, a nice f uh, focus on Shiraz and Chardonnay. Uh, there's, there's the new wave fine wines from Australia, which is what we've been focusing on a little bit at this tasting yesterday. And then alternative varieties, because of course, you know, Australia does some fantastic things like Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, Tempranillo, you know, all these sorts of things as well. So uh, we're trying to make sure that we we give equal share to all of these sorts of areas but it's a really fascinating uh well it's a fascinating wine country of course i think we probably don't fully appreciate the depth of it in the uk so I'm trying to do my best to, to bring all of the all of the goodies uh to wine society members that i can well you're bringing in some great wines just explain Thank for you. those listening what you mean by new wave when it comes to australia New Wave, I guess it's uh, it's I appreciate a fairly loose term, but I think it's more about sort of embodying a a modern approach towards winemaking. I think a lot of the New Wave suppliers that we've been working with have a real specific and significant um, sort of uh, commitment to sustainability. For example, uh, a lot of the winemaking styles are much more kind of hands-off, uh, you know, nothing being added that doesn't need to be added and so on. So I, I think it's quite an interesting movement. I think one thing which does tie a lot of these new wave wines, new wave wines together, it's a difficult thing to say, um, is uh, freshness, early picking, you know, maintaining acidity, not going for these really big, bold, uh, sort of more, I guess, classic uh, styles, but going for delicate fruit, um, 
yeah lovely acidity and and so on so it's it's quite i think it's a really nice well quite literally refreshing uh, style of australian wine um so i've been certainly uh, drinking my fair share and I, I think also a lot of these new wave wines are particularly good for uh well first of all summer drinking that freshness lends it lends them to to you know drinking in the sunshine but also i think what's quite interesting i've found with these australian new wave wines is that they're much more designed to be drunk young you know the, you know fine wines from around the world often benefit from a bit of aging or you know you buy some and stick them in your cellar but i think a lot of the australian new wave fine wines are wines which really are designed to be opened and drunk fairly young so it's, it's something quite different i think at the other end of the spectrum if you like um you have um some uh, australian heritage um in the form of tyrrells the legendary oh, yes. hunter valley uh, producer um uh, i i adore their um, Semillon, which is is, yeah. is, is is just so distinctive Super, and delicious. It? And mm. you actually featured um, Tyrrells at the members' event last night, didn't you? Yeah, so one thing we did on the side was a little masterclass. Um, so we had Andrew Moody from Tyrrells, who's uh, in charge of their sort of international... Uh, in, I can't remember his exact, his exact job title, but it's he basically is in charge of all the uh, international uh, export stuff. Um, so he, he was over from Australia, which is great. It's really nice to have him in town. And he very kindly did a, a masterclass on Tyrrells for members at the uh, at the tasting which is really interesting and he showed four of their wines and uh yeah, it was absolutely super actually he's uh, this really <laughs> this is going to sound really silly but it's really nice to once again be able to hear an australian accent talking about australian wines yeah. something that you take for granted <laughs> and not over zoom you know in, in exactly person, Ex- exactly real. precisely yeah absolutely and um for those um, who are uh, not uh, initiated to the joys of Hunter Valley Semillon. Uh, mm. Just explain um, what that is and what makes it so uh, distinctive and different for me. Sure, yeah, so it's a really, really unique uh, to Australia uh, style of wine. So Semillon, of course, is a grape um, in the, in the, well, in France, famously makes up um, a significant part of the white Bordeaux uh, production. Uh, in Hunter, uh, Hunter Semillon is made in a very different style, though, to, to, to Bordeaux. So because of the climate in Hunter, they pick very, very early uh, because otherwise it gets very rainy, very wet, uh, which means that the Semillon is picked with incredibly high acidity. So when it's in its youth, it's an incredibly fresh, incredibly uh, acidic, and, and uh, but incredibly refreshing uh, white wine. Uh, but it's or the best examples anyway, I never oaked, so it's very clean, very pure, very vibrant style. The interesting thing with Hunter Semillon is that it seems to go through two major sort of phases in its life as it ages. So when it's young, as I say, you know, it's this incredibly linear, focused, uh, crisp white wine. And then as it matures, and this is a wine which can age for years, you know, Tyrrell's Vat 1 Semillon, for example, will age literally for decades. It, it becomes this incredibly... Well, I think delicious, but incredibly complex uh, style of wine where you've got these notes of uh, beeswax and honey and uh, almost a slightly rieslingy kind of note on the nose and lanolin and things like this. So it develops all these interesting savoury notes and spicy notes. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's a really unique style to Australia. And it's it's really, if you haven't checked it out, 
it's well worth trying because it's super. But try and get one really young one and one much mature one, if you can, to see the difference. Yeah, which I guess is what you were doing with the, the tasting. It is a mm, delicious, exactly. uh, sensational wine. So I would, um, mm. I would echo that. Now, you were talking about the return of normality and hearing about uh, Australian, um, or hearing actual Australian accents, not about <laughs> them. You've uh, been back on the road again, which I know is something that you desperately missed during the pandemic. And you've been... In Austria, one of your yes. key markets, one that you uh, you jealously guard, um, <laughs> uh, looking at the 2021 vintage. Yes. What do you make of it? Oh, my God, it's good. <laughs> it's, it's really good. I heard, you know, I'd been hearing some good stuff, obviously monitoring what was going on in the lead up to harvest, just asking questions. But of course, most of the winemakers are reluctant to get too excited before the grapes are in and the wine is made. Um, so this was my first time getting out there and really doing some in-depth tasting of the 21 vintage and I mean it's without a doubt the best Austrian vintage I've worked with uh, but what's especially exciting is there's there was winemakers saying to me that they think it might well be the best vintage in 20 years for wow. Austria uh, I mean so you know that's uh, that's something that people don't say lightly you know from what I saw I think they're absolutely right the, the wines have this incredible balance of ripe fruit really lovely ripe juicy fruit but also high acidity um, but it's not in any way sort of searing acidity because you've got that lovely ripe fruit there which softens it out so it's structurally very impressive the wines are very complete you know they don't there's nothing that feels like or you know there's no sort of um, blind spots in the wine uh, it's, it's just lovely complete I think also ageable uh, wine from 21 uh, but it seems to really have the best elements of both 2019 and 2020. So 2019 was very warm and there was this lovely, very full ripe fruit character to 2019. 2020 was much cooler vintage, much higher acidity. So you didn't have that uh, as much of that ripe fruit. Um, but 21 has the best of both. You've got the lovely core and then you've got this sort of train track of acidity that holds it all together. It's absolutely delicious. Mm. How exciting. Uh, yes. It's 2021 is going to go down in the annals of wine history as a very difficult year for yes. a number of places. I would go as far as to say probably most places. So mm. this is really kind of bucking the trend, isn't it? It is. That's true. Yes. So 21, obviously, across most of Europe, there's not much wine. Uh, there was those severe frosts, um, uh, well, almost this time last year, but uh, uh, spring last year, which meant that for parts of Europe which had been very, very warm previous to the frosts uh, and the vines were starting to kick into action, uh, it was catastrophic. But in Austria, they hadn't had that warm spell before the frosts. It was still very cold. So the vines hadn't sort of woken up yet. There was nothing for the frosts to, to damage at that point. Uh, and uh, it meant happy days for the Austrians because then they had a really lovely long um, ripening season. And then when it came into, into harvest time, they're all saying the conditions were absolutely spot on. They had, you know, sort of an Indian summer. So uh, they were really happy. So they, they yeah, they managed to avoid uh, being hit by the same sort of catastrophic frosts that the rest of Europe were hit by. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's a it's a top pick for Europe from 21, I think. Well, lucky them. And this is across the board as far as you have tasted. It's It's all the wines that you would look to bring in that are doing really well, is it? Yes, yeah, which is quite nice, quite unique. Um, you know, as, as you know, um, a lot of the Austrian wine regions, the, the major ones where, you know, which would be exported, are within maybe a maximum two hours drive from one extreme to the other. So it's not, 
Uh, it's not hugely spread out. So generally speaking, uh, you would expect to have similar conditions across most of them. But yes, from uh, from the guys Grabenwerkstatt in the Spitzergraben of the Wackau, the furthest most westerly uh, part of the Wackau, they were super happy all the way over to Bergenland. Uh, and I saw Pitnauer and Birgit Braunstein and uh, and they were really happy as well. So it's definitely uh, across the board for sure. Well, I'm really looking forward to getting a, a taste of that uh, come September when they uh, <laughs> release the uh, the first wines uh, uh, for, for tasting. Uh, very, very uh, good news for, for Austria and their, their great mm. wines. I, I'm, I'm with you on, on that. Uh, looking yes, forward to those. Um, just before you go, um, Easter next weekend, I yes. have to ask you, I'm, I'm sure you're asked this quite often, what do you pair with um, an Easter lunch? For me, I, I tend to keep it quite simple. And uh, I think Rioja with lamb. I always have lamb on Easter, a nice shoulder of lamb, actually. And ideally, uh, a slow-cooked uh, barbecue shoulder of lamb. But I think Rioja, good good Grand Reserva, if possible, is the best. But I was also thinking you could take it from another angle and think... Uh, Think about the vineyards that use sheep, uh, you know, during the winter. Does that work as a pairing? You, you know, if it's what grows together goes together. If there's sheep in the vineyards, surely the wine works for Easter, right? Yeah, well, I, I guess so. Um, I, I tend to um, tell people to go to the Rhone, but that's it's so easy oh, to say idea. go to the Rhone because you can pair virtually anything with, um, yes. with, uh, with a good wine from the Rhone. <laughs> plenty but, of variety. But actually thinking about Austria, I, I think that acidity in uh, mm. in the um, in Blaufrankisch would make it um, a, a really um, interesting pair with something like lamb. That's a good that idea. Fattiness and mm. that sort of slight oiliness and it's yeah. very aromatic. But I think it would be worth trying a, a really good like a, a Spitzerberg, you know, uh, Blaufrankisch. Um, I but, think uh, yeah. that's a good shout. Go. I but, think but these Austrians are onto something, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I hate lamb, unfortunately. So it's uh, <laughs> Do you? a great deal. Of, oh yeah, too, oh, too, no. too, too smelly, too oily. Not not uh, not my bag at all. And just oh. finally, chocolate. Uh, oh yes. Is there anything in wine terms? Do you think? that ever works with chocolate? It's a, it's a difficult one. I remember one of my old colleagues who used to work at the Wine Society saying, chocolate is the death of all wine. Uh, and uh, I thought, gosh, strong words. I believe it's um, a little bit easier when you go sort of darker, uh, you know, high percentage of, of, of cocoa type stuff where you've got less sort of sweetness to interfere. But to be honest with you, I've quite enjoyed uh, a, a nice bit of fairly dark chocolate with a port. Um, or there is uh, a South African red muscadel that we sell at the Wine Society, which is actually very inexpensive sweet wine, uh, and it's very good, and that's quite, that's actually quite nice with chocolatey things. But I think it is difficult to get a perfect pairing with chocolate. Um, it is deceptively difficult to get right, but um, frankly, I think you could go down that route of... If you like the chocolate you're eating and you like the wine you're drinking, then that's quite a good pairing in itself. What, what do you think? Have you got, a, got an idea? Well, I'm afraid I take a rather defeatist view. I've tried so many different things. Never yes. really found anything that's really worked. The chocolate works against the wine, yeah. not with it. I think I'd be inclined to have the port and then have the chocolate to be honest. Yes. Well, it's not a bad idea. I mean, who's complaining if you've got port and chocolate? I mean, it doesn't really matter what order you drink them in, does well, it? No, it's a <laughs> thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, exactly. Freddie, it's a great pleasure, uh, as always. Thank you. And um, well, nice good to luck chat again. Back from Liverpool. And, thank you. Um, thank you very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Pleasure. Thanks, David. I'll see you soon. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. 
while as uh, Freddie exits, uh, there's just time for a couple more medal winners from the IWSC, uh, for which uh, Freddie is also a leading judge, uh, to South Africa this time, and Constantia, its oldest and coolest wine region, for a silver medal winning wine. Constantia Glen 5 2018 is a blend led by Cabernet Franc with equal parts Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon, and also a bit of Petit Verdo and Malbec too. Uh, giving it 90 points, the judges said, an engaging nose revealing the sensual delights of ripe Victoria plums, cream and vanilla. Fleshy and ripe on the palate with opulent fruit, soft tannins and elegant freshness. And finally for today, let's celebrate another 2022 gold medal winner from the 2022 Spirits judging process, uh, the results of which were only announced a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this time it is a rum. Bacardi 10-year-old Grand Reserva Diaz rum comes from Puerto Rico and it scored 95 points in the competition. The judging panel said of this, lots of big bright fruits on the palate with a lovely level of sweetness, tropical fruit, cooked banana and a silky buttery mouth coating texture, long and balanced finish. And that is our not-so-long but definitely balanced finish uh, for this week. My thanks to Laurent Frenet at uh, Mum and the team there for a revelatory experience. And also to Freddie, as always, for his um, update on life as a buyer. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And I am Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time goodbye. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. 